Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the new podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. My guest today is the superintendent of Metro Nashville Public Schools, Dr. Sean Joseph. Dr. Joseph, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you for having me. So we'll start out with a few fun rapid fire questions. Let's do it. What's your go-to source for news? Oh, CNN. Hey, a lot of CNN. I, I do read the Wall Street Journal. I read the uh, New York Times. And I, I got to keep up with the Tennessean uh, because uh, I'm in it often. <laughs> you are. That's, that's very true. So what is the most important thing that people don't know about your background? Um, I don't think people know that my, my father immigrated to this country. Uh, so I have an understanding of the immigrant situation pretty intimately. Uh, he immigrated to this country from Antigua. Uh, I think my mother grew up in rural Georgia, uh, so I have southern roots here. Uh, so people think that I'm a, just a northerner, uh, but <laughs> yeah, I've been influenced by uh, my mother, who is from Georgia. Uh, and I have two kids that are in the school system. So you know, every decision that I make uh, is made not only from you know, being an administrator and, and being the top administrator in the school system, uh, but being the father of a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old uh, who go to their local neighborhood school. Uh, so I get to see the typical experience uh, like the other 86,000 uh, families in our district. So I see the, the good and I see the warts uh, as a parent. And so when I'm doing work and making decisions, all of that's kind of rolled up. In addition to, you know, listening to a million different people uh, to get perspective about how do we move forward. That's really interesting. And can you give us a book recommendation? Yeah, I think uh, Outward Mindset by the Arbinger Institute, uh, Leadership and Self-Deception by the Arbinger Institute. And most recently, um, you know, thinking about yesterday being the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, I would say A Testament of Hope, uh, the essential writings of Dr. Martin Luther King. He was a brilliant mind. And I think anyone who had the opportunity to sit down and, and study his essential speeches uh, will see his development as a thinker and his uh, development as a leader through his, his work. So uh, I've spent a lot of time really analyzing uh, some of that because it's very insightful. I mean, he was someone who was steeped in philosophy and steeped in kind of religion, religious pedagogy. And uh, you, you can, it's very insightful to, to analyze his words. And now moving on to kind of a discussion of the school district. What change uh, have you instituted so far that you're most proud of? Well, there are many. I mean, I'm extremely proud that uh, the board last year in our budget cycle uh, made sure that we paid for students to take industry certification courses, IB courses, dual enrollment courses, Cambridge courses, and AP IB courses. Because what that did was uh, give every student who wants a rigorous education an opportunity to not only be in the course, but to take the test so we can, we can measure that. And I think that, that was the greatest equity accomplishment uh, of last year. But I'm also proud of the fact that we have gifted and talented specialists in 
all middle schools and elementary schools, that we have literacy specialists in all of our schools within the district, uh, that we are monitoring whether how students are performing and we're communicating to parents where students are reading uh, against the national uh, measure. Uh, so a parent should can know that their child reads in the 80th percentile or reads in the 20th percentile, which enables them to specifically go to their principal and say, what are you doing for my kid? He's above average or he's below average or he's right on, but those conversations can be had now. And we couldn't do that uh, two years ago, both in reading and math. Uh, so I'm pretty excited uh, about that. And I'm also excited about the, the work that we're talking about uh, with trying to pay attention to the social emotional needs of our kids. Now, a lot of parents have been concerned about safety lately and there have been questions about you know what's the district doing to keep our kids safe well to me the way we keep our kids the safe the safest is knowing our kids and really helping our staffs understand how to know our kids and how to help our kids uh, regulate uh, their own uh, behaviors and, and teaching our kids how to better interact not only with one another um, but with adults and our work in social emotional learning it's really a model uh, for the nation. I think we have put some great tools in place uh, to measure school culture, but now we have to put the resources in to provide staff training to do that. I mean, so those are some of the things that uh, you know, I'm really proud of and I think are moving uh, the needle in the district. Sure. And you mentioned the social and emotional learning. Can you walk us through the process of reorganizing the student services department and explain how... I think what are being perceived as layoffs are going to improve the student outcomes. Yeah, so here are, here are a couple of things on that. I mean, I we are a district with 11,000 employees. And of those 11,000 employees, uh, we talked about uh, uh, cutting seven uh, positions. Now, those seven positions out of those 11,000 positions uh, are seven uh, special, uh, seven social workers. Uh, and we realized we could cut those seven social workers because in the budget that I'm um, proposing, uh, we're actually proposing adding uh, 18 community in schools programs. Uh, community in schools uh, puts a social worker in a school and helps to provide wraparound support. Now, the difference is you know, that social worker doesn't necessarily sit down with students and provide the counseling component, the mental health components, uh, but they do connect them to greater resources within the district. And uh, we've made some adjustments to include some behavioral specialists uh, in our budget and to um, add some more capacity for our Community Achieves program, which is a wraparound service that's provided to schools. So the goal was to take existing positions that we had, which were parent involvement specialist uh, positions uh, that worked in schools but really didn't have as much focus as I would have liked to see and consistency as I would like to see. We're repurposing those positions to be directly working within the clusters. I divided our school system up into four different areas. And so we took those 35 positions that are being repurposed, including those seven uh, social workers, and we're creating a structure where all schools uh, will have more systemic focused targeted supports. Uh, so 
again, in a organization with 11,000 employees, uh, repurposing and realizing that there are seven positions that um, really weren't needed because we've refocused and retargeted is efficient. Um, so understanding that it's a national problem, what steps are being taken to address the teacher shortage in Nashville? For instance, I noticed this budget includes pay raises. Yeah. So for the second year in a row, I'm recommending uh, pay raises and step increases uh, in, in the district. You know, we have a great benefits plan. I think our health insurance, we cover 75% of uh, a person's premium. And, you know, we have uh, pensions. All teachers have pensions. And the Tennessee Pension Program is an excellent uh, pension uh, system. But one of the things we know we need to do uh, is do a better job getting out and just touching great people, talking to great people, and telling the Nashville story. Uh, Nashville has lots of great things here uh, that a prospective teacher uh, would want to be in this this town and, and serve this community with these with these great uh, children, uh, but one of the things we know we need to do is continue to be competitive with our salaries. When we start, uh, our salaries are pretty competitive. I believe we a teacher makes around forty three thousand dollars a year uh, to start within Metro Nashville Public Schools, and that is very competitive uh, within uh, the region and within the the country. Uh, the challenge is over a twenty five year period. Uh, we don't think we keep pace. And uh, we have uh, determined that to uh, keep pace, it would actually cost us about an additional $25.4 million. And it would be about a 4.5% increase to balance. And you put those dollars in to kind of balance our scales, uh, to put really put more dollars at the, the end of a person's career so those salaries can be much stronger. Uh, so that's something that, you know, because I don't produce my own money, I have to work with the council and I have to work with the mayor uh, to come up with a plan to do that. That's going to be a multi-year uh, process. But, you know, one of the things we need to do is make sure that when we get teachers and they're in our schools, uh, those teachers feel valued, uh, those teachers feel heard, uh, those teachers have the resources that they need. Uh, to work with our students, uh, so it's a you know it's a very complex phenomena. Uh, but one of the things like that we're doing is we're we're having conversations about culture. Uh, we are having com and we're monitoring culture within our district. Uh, we're having conversations about compensation, uh, and we are working to expand our ability to recruit uh, talented people and to tell the story of why. Nashville is the best place in America to work. So as you mentioned, a new teacher starting out with a bachelor's degree earns just over $43,000, and a similar teacher in year 25 earns uh, $57,680. What would be an ideal raise if, if you could get it from the Metro Council approval? What would you like to see to help retain great teachers? Have that pay be in year twenty five, just kind of ballpark. Well, I don't. I thought I don't know if that number for year twenty five is accurate. I would have to verify that. It seems low. I thought we were in about the seventy thousand range uh, by year twenty five. But I, I, I think if you be... still, I just checked this morning. I think if you still have a bat, just a bachelor's degree, hmm. I think that's okay. the amount. Okay, that 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 could be accurate. And then you know. Um, 
Well, the, the range the ranges vary. Uh, you know, in uh, my previous uh, experiences in a different state, you, know, you would have teachers that would uh, top out, you know, close to a hundred thousand dollars, and and some would exceed a hundred, depending on where you go. Uh, and I think that's a, a worthy goal for someone with extensive experience and educational background. As a quick note, if you're enjoying the Nashville Sounding Board, please leave a review or a rating on the Apple Podcasts app or your app of choice. So the Title I funds have attracted a lot of attention. Um, You've chosen to redirect the Title I funds towards the district's neediest schools, um, and that's been met with its fair share of criticism. But others have pointed out that that move took political courage. Can you explain for listeners why that move was necessary? Absolutely. Well, first, let me say that uh, Metro Nashville Public Schools, as well as all of the schools in Tennessee, are underfunded. And I think they're underfunded because, I mean, we're just in a state where we don't have an income tax and we don't have lots of property taxes. Uh, So the plus to that is people have more money. The downside to that is in terms of services, uh, we don't have the ability to redistribute wealth like other states can and do uh, to enhance the per pupil expenditures for uh, things like education. So one of the things we were talking about as I went through this budget season for my second year uh, is that we're not going to get a lot of new dollars. So the question becomes, how do we use the dollars that we have more efficiently, better, more effective to to get what we need. As we were going through the budget season, the very first department that I worked with was the uh, uh, Title I office. And as I was looking at our Title I dollars and I was looking at the number of schools that received Title I dollars, I realized that 139 out of 160 of our schools received Title I dollars. And uh, in most places, you use the Title I dollars to really target and focus uh, impact. You know, you use those dollars to make them impactful, to focus in an area. And I just felt like we were spreading those dollars way too thin. Uh, so schools weren't really getting enough money in general to have significant impact. And I see Title I dollars as dollars that are given to us by the federal government to have a dramatic impact on students uh, in poverty, right? And But when I looked at how those dollars were being distributed, it seemed like we were using those dollars just to supplement uh, the fact that mm. we don't have enough dollars in general, right? But over the past, over the past two years, I have added an additional $14.8 million directly to school budgets. Uh, because we have a student-based budget process, which essentially says dollars are attached to kids, and the more complex a student is, the more dollars that student generates in in terms of uh, being in um, a school. So by adding 14.8 additional million dollars to our student-based budgets, over the past two years, all schools have gotten much more money than they have had two years ago. So I asked the Title I department, what if we did an, an analysis to see if we move the Title I dollars, would it have a significant impact on what schools currently do? 
And as they ran the numbers, they saw that, you know, schools at most would lose about 3% of the dollars that they had the previous year if Title I dollars were taken away because we've added that $14.8 million out to schools. So I thought there was an opportunity to really uh, condense the uh, target the Title I dollars into uh, schools with higher levels of poverty because those schools with higher levels of poverty also uh, were schools that had lower achievement and and less resource. Uh, you know, in, in many, and I, you know, we work with an organization called the Council of Great City Schools that are the 70 largest urban school districts in the country. And I reached out to them and just asked the question, typically, uh, when you look at council schools, at least, where where do schools uh, draw the line when it comes to Title One dollars? And the numbers varied, but it, but it was really around sixty some odd percent. No one really does the fifty percent. Some do. Then uh, it's typically in states that don't have uh, taxes, income taxes, and things, and they're they're doing the same thing we were trying to do, just trying to get more dollars to as many schools as they can mm-hmm. uh, without impact. But for those schools that those school districts that have um, kind of had impact with those dollars, you see they typically are at the higher end uh, targeting schools and, quite frankly, targeting a grade level. So they might focus on only giving elementary schools dollars uh, targeted because then you can get kids caught up early at the elementary level and, and hope they can they can produce. So that, that was the thinking behind it. It was really uh, looking at how do we um, target more dollars particularly in our schools that had uh, lower achievement and higher uh, poverty. And so you've moved the threshold from 50% to 75% poverty, is that correct? Yeah, so now, so so the original thinking when I proposed the first budget, uh, I moved, I only recommended funding students that were, or schools that were from the 75th percentile to the 100th percentile. Um, taking away dollars from the 50th percentile to the 74th percentile in poverty. Um, but, um, you know, we got feedback. And what I realized in hindsight was that uh, I moved, you know, my urgency and passion to try to get things right uh, was the intent. But I realized more communication uh, should have happened with the uh, public, it should have happened with principals, should have happened with schools, just to understand the conversation. And, you know, I think even though um, I don't think it's the wrong decision, I think we need to move towards that over time. I think there has to be more conversation and understanding on how student-based budgets uh, are developed and what schools have. Like, this is the first year parents really probably are aware of how those budgets are developed. I mean, we put that out there and, and opened up the conversation. So I think it was a good thing to do. Um, but now what we've done is we said, okay, so from 50 to 74%, uh, we're going to give dollars. We're just going to give less dollars. So we'll give $300 per pupil in those schools. Um, and for schools from 75% to 100% will give $651, I believe, per pupil. Uh, so schools in poverty will still get more dollars, um, just uh, not as much as they would have gotten if, if we moved it all away. But sure. it's a good step forward uh, as for the equity conversation. Mm-hmm. E- equity to me is about getting schools what they need. And so I think this process has opened up conversations between schools and their community superintendents and their principal supervisors, we call them EDSSIs, 
about what a school actually needs and do they have the dollars to do what they need. Uh, and, you know, for those schools that still need resource, we keep a reserve of, of, of money aside uh, for what we call exemption hires. Uh, so if at the beginning of the year uh, enrollment is up in a school and we thought uh, and we didn't anticipate it, we, we have dollars to be able to give the school to be able to meet the child's needs. Or you know, sometimes we have small schools or um, excruciating circumstances where we look and realize the school really needs something and, and we hold funds to be able to give to them in those instances. Okay. Um, and you mentioned the Urban Schools um, Association around the country. Which urban public school systems in your mind are doing an excellent job in educating low-income students to high levels of achievement? Yeah, so uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, is doing, I think, an, an incredible job. I think we've seen progress in school districts like Charlotte-Mecklenburg, uh, school systems like Denver, um, those, those are the ones that immediately come to mind in terms of seeing clear outcome uh, for students in poverty in particular. And so you've made it a goal of the district to become the fastest improving urban school system in the country. That's right. We're going to do it. What does that mean to you and how does this budget help achieve that goal? Yeah, it, it means what we saw on our recent uh, uh measures of academic progress in reading and math. Uh, and what we saw uh, was that, uh, you know, in February, our district-wide overall test scores in both reading and math were the highest yet achieved by uh, Metro Nashville Public School students. Uh, these are tests that um, 8 million students across the country take uh, and measure how students perform in reading and math to our standards. You know, for the first time, MMPS had a grade level achievement above the national average, and it happened in each subject area. Uh, eighth graders scored uh, above the national average 50th percentile in reading, while a median average of 52%. And we had second graders surpass the national average in math, scoring in the 55th national percentile. You know, the academic growth of our students in grades two through eight from August to February actually surpassed national averages for both reading and math. And this, again, was the first time that our students exceeded their peers nationally. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the reading scores for the typical uh, Nashville student increased by three national percentile points and four percentile points in mathematics. Uh, you know, 56% of our students exceeded national growth expectations in reading, and 59% of students uh, exceeded their growth expectations in math. And the majority of students in every grade level exceeded national average for both reading and math. And uh, we saw the average academic growth in all, sub in all student groups uh, in, in all four parts of our school district. So again, that's what uh, I'm talking about. I want to see us continue uh, to grow faster than other students in the nation. And for us to do that, uh, we've got to continue to target our resources, uh, continue to invest in professional development for our staff, uh, continue to work with parents to help parents understand where their children are. And if children are not uh, on target uh, to have that 21 on the ACT that we want, uh, we need to be asking why earlier and working with parents uh, to uh, keep kids on track and get kids the supports they need. 
So you ran through a lot of kind of performance indicators. What is the single most important metric in your mind for evaluating students' performance and then also for evaluating teacher performance? Well, what I like about the measures of academic progress in reading and math is that um, 8 million kids across the country take it. Uh, It gives our teachers feedback, data that they can use to help with targeting their teaching. And it's predictive to how our students will perform on the TN uh, ready assessments and the ACT. Uh, So I think it's important to have assessments that are ongoing. Uh, One assessment isn't something that is useful to us. So, you know, the TN ready, the ACT, they're nice, but you take it, you get a score, and that's that. There's no instructional piece. Uh, That's why I like the measures of academic progress in math and reading, because we give that three times a year, and teachers can get get information from those tests to better teach and target their instruction. And that's important to me. Sure. Um, So I've read that the district has lost grant funding that helps provide free lunches to every student. I know that's a difficult situation. Can you speak to the parents and community members who are worried by that news? Sure. So four years ago, uh, we applied to a federal grant uh, that uh, enabled us to give all students within the district uh, free breakfast and free lunch. We knew four years ago that we would have to reapply, and we knew that to qualify, we would have to have 60% of our students uh, qualifying for for, uh, SNAP, you know, the the direct certification. Uh, Right now, we're at 47% of our students uh, qualifying for direct certification. Therefore, we don't qualify to participate in that program for free breakfast and free lunch. Mm -hmm. We are exploring the possibility of um, a program that will allow us to offer free breakfast to everyone within the district. Um, But because we don't qualify as a full school district, only those schools that qualify can give free breakfast and free lunch universally. So we have, I believe, about 87 to 89 schools. Uh, It was over 80. I forget the specific number. But we have about half of our schools will continue with the program and be able to give free breakfast and free lunch. The other half of our schools will need to uh, fill out the forms like they did four years ago prior to us being in the program. So any student who qualifies for free breakfast or free lunch will still get free breakfast or free lunch. Just those students like my children who will not qualify for free breakfast and free lunch uh, will not get that. Uh, You know, we are very concerned because we want all kids to eat. And, uh, you know, the big concern is we have, you know, students whose families may not understand the process and may not as a result of not understanding the process, may not uh, apply to get free breakfast and free lunch. So we know we're going to make sure and work hard to make sure every family understands how to apply, understands uh, the why it's important, and, mm-hmm. and understands that there are no consequences that come from giving us the information to determine whether they qualify or not. Uh, but, but it'll be a big communications uh uh, process for us as we move into uh, the fall. You know, it would cost us about $8 million to pay for kids like my kids to uh, automatically get that lunch. 
and that's something we're talking about uh, but we know that these are very difficult budget times uh, so we're looking at all options right now and uh, we'll be very communicative uh, with families as we move forward gotcha and one final question and it's an important one what factors led to lower than expected enrollments that has kind of caused a budget shortfall and what is the district doing to increase the accuracy of future enrollment projections? Yeah, you know, so for the past numerous years, almost a decade, we've been growing as a district. Uh, and we've been growing at a clip of about 1,500 students per year, uh, predominantly our, in our English language learner uh, student group. Uh, we have about 17,000 English language learners within our school district. Uh, this year was a surprise uh, to us, quite frankly, and we don't know if it's the gentrification of the city. Uh, we don't know if it's the new uh, administration's policies regarding immigration uh, that people have not moved, uh, but we anticipated 1,500 more students and we ended up with 500 fewer students. Uh, and again, this you know, was an anomaly, something that we didn't anticipate or expect a year ago. What we know now is that uh, something is happening, and it could be, like I said, our housing patterns uh, within the city. Uh, people are moving out to the suburbs because it's cheaper uh, to live in other places. Uh, so what we've done in terms of projections for next year is we're projecting a flat enrollment uh, and we'll monitor it closely. But, you know, we have, we, you know, so there was a $7.5 million less dollars than we budgeted for because we didn't get the money from the state that you usually get when you get more kids. Mm -hmm. uh, so what you know, we have a savings account. Uh, we have almost a $900 million budget. So the percentage-wise, uh, we have it in our account to, you know, address. And that's one of the reasons you have a savings account, uh, because, you know, budgets are always projections. Mm -hmm. uh, and you try to project as close as you can, and you make adjustments as you need to. So it's not uh, a, we're not in a crisis mode. Uh, we're not broke. We're not, uh, what do we do? And there is no significant, uh, you know, shortfall this year that, uh, you know, one of the things we did do, though, is say, instead of just saying, well, we'll just take it from our savings account. Uh, we said, no, why don't we put a, a freeze on spending? And why don't we put a freeze on uh, hiring for non-essential positions uh, just to save some dollars so that way it won't be a full $7.5 million we have to take from our savings account? to address the shortfall. I mean, that's just good business practice. Sure. Um, but we have been pretty spot on for a long time with our um, projections. Uh, we have very good people who do that work for us. And But we'll make the adjustment now that we know that things are changing. Uh, we'll, we'll hopefully be much closer uh, as we look into the process next year. Well, I'd like to give my guest an opportunity to kind of close out on any notes that you think listeners should know that they might not have heard today or heard in um, various other news coverage. No, I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. And I want families to know that, you know, you have a school system that uh, is doing everything we can possibly do uh, to give your kids a competitive advantage. Uh, you know, I am so proud of the thousands of teachers and employees that we have in the district. And one of the things that we're committed to doing 
is really working with families and listening to families to um, better be partners uh, with our families. Uh, we know that uh, families entrust us with their children uh, to uh, give their children a great education, and, and we thank you for that trust. And we plan on continuing to work with you uh, to help your children exceed great expectations. So uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak to our community. And I look forward to continuing the dialogue. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. If you've been enjoying the Nashville Sounding Board, I strongly encourage you to check out another Nashville podcast called Education Conversations. It's hosted by Linda Donovan, and listening to Education Conversations has really helped me keep up with the state of our schools and education policy in Nashville.